Good morning, everyone. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Chicago Church. Special welcome this morning to our friends who are here from out of town. Some people are just here from out of town, and it's so delightful to see you. Some people are here from out of town in a very special conference, the Reformation Project Conference down at Fourth Presbyterian Church. Some very old friends are here. And then some newer friends are here. Some preachers are here uh, who were very careful to not mention they were around Sunday morning. I think they were afraid they might get asked to preach. Well played. Well played. Nice to see everybody. And that goes for everyone who's not a preacher, especially because uh, you're the reason why we keep going here at Grace Chicago Church. If you're visiting this morning, let me just add... What's already been said about how happy we are that you're visiting with us. Whatever has brought you here, uh, we love to not even so much know about that as to have the privilege and opportunity uh, just to get to know you and uh, to let you know uh, how excited we are uh, to share the welcome and love that we've experienced from, uh, from the God who reveals himself in Christ, the one who is known because he has hands that heal, and in those hands, God says he has written our names. He's written our names. Our second lesson from the Gospel of Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh God, open our ears that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be the one who teaches us this morning, increase our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, in this homily, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to weave together some themes that are in the, the reading from Thessalonians and the reading from here in the first portion of the reading from Matthew. Let's see how well that goes. Civility is the sum of the many sacrifices we are called to make for the sake of living together. Civility. Some of many sacrifices 
we are called to make for the sake of living together. That quote is from Yale Law Professor Stephen Carter, and it was this week in an op-ed piece in the New York Times by David Brooks. Maybe some of you read it. The piece by Brooks is one of many that he's written over the last year or so where he mourns the loss of civility in public life. It's true, isn't it? A great number of people today, probably some people here in this room, is feeling worn out. Worn out by the polarization, the demonization that's becoming more and more commonplace in the public square. I'm mindful that that many of us come into this space this morning having experienced the corrosive impact of that aspect of the spirit of our age. And, and sometimes I bet that sadly and embarrassingly, we would have to admit that we've contributed to it sometimes. Different ways. In the context of our friendships, our extended families, even in the workplace. I was thinking about all of that this week as I was working on today's homily. In our world today and in our country, man, it is just so obvious how people can be remarkably unkind to each other. It's social structures uh, often set up in a way so as to preserve an order that's profoundly unfair to those at the margins. It's so commonplace in, in today's world for people to prefer the promises of charlatans to the frank and plain talk of ordinary people. And the age-old story, the powerful will oppress, powerful will oppress, they'll oppress the weak and the vulnerable, and they'll do it sexually, they'll do it economically, they'll do it every which way. All of this bad stuff happens in our world. But you know, as I was reading through the Thessalonians passage, and all these thoughts are running through my mind, and the Matthew passage, you know, it occurred to me, and it's not rocket science, okay, but it just kind of occurred to me in a deeply existential way, um, that the world is like this is nothing new, and this was the Roman world that the Thessalonians lived in, a world where people exploit one another routinely. It's, it's not a surprise that one of Paul's focuses in this letter to this young church, that one of his focuses is on community life and the dynamics of human relationships including the thorny issue of how authority is worn and manifested, how authority flows in and through the community, how authority speaks and acts will often influence and shape the way everyone else in the community treats each other. So I was so grateful that the Spirit prompted the talking nerdiness 
this morning. How will you know the king? He has hands that heal. You know, you think about the psalm that called us to worship this morning. Let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to your children. And that power has come through the one who heals. That power has come through the one who said, I will not exploit that power to take advantage of others, but took on the form of a servant and lived a cruciform life leading to a cruciform death so that we might have life. How authority flows in the community. How authority speaks and acts gives shape to the community and to the life of the community, life of the people together in the community. And that, 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 that is why it is so striking that the metaphor that Paul uses to describe his role as an authority, his role as an apostle, and, and, and note this, this is likely the first time in writing that we know of, that Paul describes his role as an apostle. First Thessalonians, likely the first letter. And if I'm wrong about that, Jim Brownson will tell me at the end of the sermon. <laughs> um, no, seriously, likely the first letter, likely the first time Paul's describing his authority as an apostle. And it's noteworthy that he uses the metaphor that he does. First time out here, this is the metaphor that he uses. He uses the word that is, in the original language, the word for a wet nurse. How's that working for you? I don't know. He's not riding on a warrior stallion or, you know, he's not in a bulletproof car. He's there as a wet nurse. Now, make no mistake, the figure of the nursemaid who took care of the babies in the ancient world, she was a beloved figure, beloved figure of trust and affection. But for a full-grown man to say that this is how I wear my authority as an apostle with you, that's a metaphor that is meant to shock you. You should be shocked by that. This kind of complex metaphor where Paul is, he's not simply parental, but he presents himself within the metaphor in the female gender. That is meant to arrest our imagination. As one scholar puts it, these kinds of complex metaphors are meant to rearrange the furniture in our minds and in our hearts. Now, by the way, I hope that that is what you come to church for each week is to have the furniture in your minds and hearts rearranged. The world, the spirit of our age, says this is what the furniture in our minds and hearts is supposed to look like. And it's nothing like the gospel-shaped life. We come here each week to have that rearranged by the spirit of God. Move the furniture around in a room And you'll see the room differently, as Beverly Roberts Givena puts it. The room may even look and feel larger. More room for more people, for more kinds of people. And you'll have to walk in new paths around the coffee table. 
He's saying to the Thessalonians, the way that you've learned power and authority in the Roman world, we're going to turn all of that upside down. We are rearranging the furniture here. We aim to be tender and vulnerable. We aim to exist to nurture others. This is how Paul says he and his co-worker apostles aim to be in the way they minister to the Thessalonians. And this is in stark contrast to the, the charlatans that he, he refers to in the passage who, who flattered the Thessalonians so that they would give them big donations, who sought praise from the Thessalonians so that their reputations would be puffed up, precede them wherever they went. That's the dynamic that he's referring to. And he says, we didn't come to you with those kinds of motives. We didn't come to you with flattery or pretext for greed. Nor do we seek praise from mortals. We have tried, tried, tried to pay attention to this at Grace Chicago Church. For as I mentioned earlier, how a community embraces power what a community wants from its leaders will ultimately end up shaping the entire life of the community. This is why we have communion as, if you think of the worship service, I know a lot of you old-timers, you know this, but if you think of the arc of the worship service as a narrative, you know, communion is, is what we've placed at the climax of that story of each Sunday. And why? Because we wanted the spotlight to be on Jesus in our midst. We didn't want the spotlight to be on the preacher when he was preaching. The human personality of the preacher so often creeps in. And that also is one of the many blessings that comes from Caleb and Sonia being with us now. Because now we have two voices from the pulpit now at Grace rather than just one. Here at Grace, it is our intent to be with you as leaders. It is our intent to be with you like nursemaids in imitation of Paul's example. Now, I am keenly aware that that I and other leaders get that wrong many times because we're sinners but our intent is to be countercultural like Paul was. We are serious about that. And I hope that, that, that you all will want that and that you will reward that model with your enthusiastic participation. Hold us accountable to it. Now, there's another important dimension moving towards Matthew. Another important dimension to the kind of countercultural community that Christ is forming around himself in the church. Not only should the members of the community desire to be gentle with each other, but we should also desire to learn to see each other as gifts that we would not have necessarily chosen for ourselves. To see each other as gifts that we would not have necessarily chosen for ourselves. That's, of course, one of the main points that Jesus is driving home in his ministry. That's what he's doing, you know, in this exchange with the Pharisees here. 
when they ask him what the greatest commandment is. When they ask questions like this, oftentimes what they were wanting is they were wanting an answer that would limit their liability. They wanted an answer that they could manage and control. They wanted some boxes to check. They wanted to be able to kind of control the boxes that they checked. And they feel like they were done being responsible to the outside world by the end of the day. But as Luke reminds us, in a similar exchange around this same love command, Luke reminds us that love is not so easily controlled. And he illustrates that point. Remember, in this exchange around the love command, he illustrates that point by putting Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan right next to it. And, and the take home from the Good Samaritan is, is the truth is that in God's world, we do not choose our neighbors. God chooses them for us. It can be anyone that God puts in our path, anyone in front of us in the communion line, anyone behind us in the communion line. Unlimited liability, wet nurse metaphors that rearrange the furniture in our minds, the community gathered around the gospel is not simply a community that believes the gospel, but is a community that in its relationships with one another preaches and portrays the gospel. You know, the the most... Arguably one of the most strategic and countercultural things that you can do as a follower of Jesus is to publicly associate yourself with your church community in the sense that what you're saying is this community is the community where God has chosen my neighbors, where God has chosen people very different from me to be received as God's gifts to me. Because that existential reality of life and community together like that, where power flows in this radically self-giving way, that, that is a portrayal of the gospel that people are dying to hear. I like Stephen Carter's quote. I like Stephen Carter. I like David Brooks. It's more than that, though. It is is having your identity formed in Christ so that you welcome others as God's gifts to you. I hope you want that in a church community. I think you do. You probably wouldn't be here. May all of us make sacrifices to keep this community vibrant in those ways. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.